We are in chapter 20 of Genesis. This is a repeat of what Abram has already do, done. Abraham, way back in chapter 12, went down into Egypt, passed his wife off as his sister, mostly because he was not trusting God. Because he didn't really know who God was at that time. Not in a real complete sense. So in some ways we can give him the benefit of the doubt. But now he has no excuse. Now he's been walking with God for a long time, and he is still doing the same thing that he did before. Which, one of the reasons that this story is here is to show that Isaac is going to be born in less than a year. Which means where before, when Sarah was sleeping with Pharaoh there was a huge risk to the promised child that if Isaac, or if a kid was born, Pharaoh could claim that. But that was still so many years away from her actually giving birth to a child. Now that we've read through the story, we realize, oh, okay. But now she's going to be having... So if she sleeps with Abimelech now, that's even more likely. We know she's pregnant, but we know she's pregnant because the narrator's telling us. But they don't have DNA testing back then. So the fact that Abimelech would sleep with her while she's pregnant, our alarms should be going up even more. Because we're told in chapter 12 she's barren, she can't have kids, she's never been able to have kids, and so the threat doesn't seem as scary. Now it seems really scary that a, a foreigner can claim this child because she actually is pregnant. And so this becomes even more threatening to the promises of God than ever before. So a lot of people say that this story is just a copy of the previous story and the narrator accidentally copied it or copied it but forgot that he copied it and kept it in. It's like, you got to be really dumb if you copied a story twice in a book and went through and edited it and still missed that. So it's not likely. But some major differences here is, first of all, this is Abimelech, not Pharaoh. Second, it's in Negev, which is south of Canaan, not all the way in Egypt. So there's big enough differences to suggest that this has happened before. Likewise, Abraham was going to tell them, like, this is what we do. <laughs> so, which we'll talk about that a little bit later, but it's interesting that he says that. <clears throat> this time he goes off, and we're not given a lot of details. Before, the narrator spent a lot of time about them going down, them seeing Pharaoh, their fear of them being passed off. Let's say that you're my sister, then her taken. This time the narrator just speeds through all that, because we already know that. We've already heard this. This is all just the same before. So the narrator speeds up to the point that Sarah is taken to emphasize what is different now. God, in verse 3, comes and appears to Abimelech and basically says, you're as good as dead. The woman you've taken is married, and she belongs to another man. Now, what's interesting is that we're not given insight into what God said to Pharaoh previously, but now we have a whole discourse where even this foreigner is talking to God in his vision, and God's talking back to him, and that's rare. We haven't seen that in Genesis yet. And so this says something about Abimelech and how God views him. And so notice, too, that Abimelech immediately defends himself and says, look, I didn't know. And he uses almost the same language that Abraham did, like how could God punish the righteous with the unrighteous when it came to Sodom and Gomorrah? And yet Abimelech says the same thing. How can you punish me for something that I didn't know that I was doing? 
And notice that God responds and says, this time, where God hadn't previously, God says, that's why I have not allowed you to touch her. I am protecting her. But notice that it's not in the preference of I'm protecting her. It's I'm protecting you. You did not know. And I'm protecting you. Which is huge that God is saying that to a foreigner and a king. And so basically he says, but you now, now that you know, you have to give her up or you're pretty much going to die. Now, also notice that Abimelech, unlike Pharaoh, is also concerned about his own people. Where Pharaoh was only cared about himself, Abimelech is caring about a broader spectrum. All this points to the fact of two things. One, Abimelech is a God-fearer. That doesn't mean he's like sold out to Yahweh and following him and all that kind of stuff. But he has a much deeper, better understanding of this Yahweh and a greater respect for him than any of the other foreigners that we've met so far. But the other thing that it shows is that Abimelech is acting more righteously than Abraham. Because Abraham is already seeing God protect him in multiple scenarios, including this exact kind of scenario previously, yet he shows no faith whatsoever when he goes into the exact same scenario. So he has not learned. So that's another reason why this story is here is because we typically do the same thing. We repeat over and over and over again the same sin, and we don't learn. And so this is showing that Abraham is human just like us. It's easy to put him up on a pedestal with these covenants and him sacrificing a son, and we think that he's this amazing man, like wouldn't God choose him and God calls him righteous? But that's the whole argument of this story, is that Abraham is a flawed, sinful human being. But he demonstrates faith in many times, and that's what makes him righteous. And so you need to realize one of the things that you cannot do in this Bible is put these people on pedestals. It's our temptation with growing up in Sunday school classes and to do the same thing and veggie tales and all that kind of stuff when I do that. But you're missing the whole point. And that I hopefully you've seen that these people are flawed. And they're way more flawed than what our Sunday school version stories have presented. And I'm not saying every Sunday school story has done that, but there's more often yes than not. A lot of times when we've grown up. And that's the whole point because the hero is God here. It's, it's never the human. It's always how God is working in their life and using them despite those flaws. And so Abraham does the same thing. So then Abimelech comes and says, how can you do this? So he's put Abraham on interrogation. Now, where before, Abraham looked really bad because he never gave a defense to Pharaoh, which emphasizes the fact that he is at fault. And he never defends himself. And Pharaoh just basically recuses him, judges him, says, take your wife, get out of here. Here, Abraham actually talks, and he looks even worse than he did before. It would have been better for him just to keep his mouth shut. Because then he goes on and says, this is what we always do every time we're in a foreign land. Now, this presents two options. If Abraham is telling the truth, and they've actually made an agreement that every single time they're in a foreign land, that they're going to pass her off as his sister, that shows an incredible lack of faith in God. That they've actually intentionally premeditated this lack of faith everywhere they go with every scenario. 
And so he looks really bad. If he's just saying this to try to make himself not look as bad, like he's not trying to hurt Abimelech intentionally, then that makes him a liar, which is still not good. So either way, he's either over-exaggerating the situation to not offend Abimelech too much, which means he's a liar, or he's really bad. So most likely he's lying. Probably because Abraham lying in this moment where he's desperate and trying to save face is a lot less um, detrimental to him than a guy who constantly shows that little faith every single time he goes somewhere new. This shows him to be a horrible witness to everybody. And that's not the Abraham that we've seen in the story. We've seen a flawed character, but not somebody so lacking in faith, especially when the, the next story is going to be this incredible demonstration of faith. So most likely he's lying in the immediate scenario in order to save face and hopefully not reap a lot of judgment. But either way, Abimelech is coming out to be more righteous. And it also shows that Abraham has seriously misjudged Abimelech and his um, state of faith and all that kind of stuff. So notice too that Abimelech, where before Pharaoh gave Abraham a dowry for Sarah, Abimelech is now giving stuff to Abraham after he already knows about this. Because one of the things that's interesting is that God calls Abraham a prophet to Abimelech, which is, he's not being a very good prophet right now. You think this is the worst time for God to tell people that you're a prophet. <clears throat> but the other thing is, this is the first time that that word prophet's ever specifically mentioned, and the first time that Abraham's ever been called a prophet. He acted as a prophet in chapter 18, but he wasn't specifically called a prophet in that scenario by the narrator or by God. And so the whole point of this is this becomes a huge threat to the promises of God that Sarah could be, Sarah could be a pharaoh or a, a king could be call, laying claim to the child. It also shows that despite the incredible faith that we've seen previously and will see, Abraham's still a flawed character, which continues to make the argument that salvation is not through the law. And one cannot truly please God through the law because Abraham is not meeting the law in so many stories, one after another, another. But he is meeting in faith. And so this puts Abraham in his proper perspective of who he really is as a human. And once again, it shows that God is protecting him. Once again. So many times God is just protecting us from ourselves and the threats. I remember having a professor one time who said, like, we think about the things that go wrong and the things that are not going right in our life. And he says, have you ever thought about all the things that could go wrong and don't, like on a daily basis? Like how many people, I'd turn on the news, and those are all the things that could be happening to you at any moment, every single moment, all throughout the entire day. And even our own stupid choices, how often we think, how in the world did I escape that one? And it's because God's protecting us. In a lot of ways. Now imagine him removing his hand because we intentionally thrust him behind our back. What that life would be like. And so despite Abraham's lack of faith in this moment, despite the fact that he's not reading the requirements of the law, overall he is a man of faith. And in that sense, God is protecting him. And God is watching over him. And so that's the major thing that we see here. Chapter 21. Now, 
after escaping this scenario of Abimelech, Sarah finally becomes pregnant. Or sorry, she is pregnant. She finally gives birth to Isaac. And Isaac is born. And there's this incredible joy as who, I mean, for any parent, but let alone a woman who's like in her 70s and she's having her first child. And she, in obedience to God, she names him Isaac. But what's interesting is she says this little poem where it says that um, when his son Isaac was eight days old, where is I just went blank. Oh, verse six. And Sarah said, God has made me laugh. Everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. She actually uses Isaac's name in this. So she says, Isaac is the name used in both of those, the words. But the second time, she literally uses the form of Isaac. So she basically says, everyone will Isaac with me. And so it shows that the name is being fulfilled already, that she is laughing, God is laughing, everybody's going to laugh with her with this great joy and praise that she's had a child. And so she shows her immediate obedience to God by naming him Isaac, proclaiming his name Isaac, and praising God for that. Abraham shows his immediate obedience to God by circumcising the child on the eighth day like he's been commanded by God, which is only a year-old command. He has only had that command for a year, and so he's immediately obeying that when we see this. And so they throw a party and a celebration, what is not uncommon to throw a party or celebration for all those in your tribe and that kind of stuff when the child is born. And so the point is that the child has finally come after 25 years of waiting for one of the only promises, one of four promises that God gave you. Remember, they still don't have the land. They still don't have the great nation. Only Abraham's only seen God protecting him. So this is one of two of the three promises that have finally come true for Abraham. 25 years is a long time to wait for promises. You think you wait a long time for God to show up and honor promises. Imagine 25 years to see that promise finally show up. And yet, overall, they have demonstrated faith. They have demonstrated faith. And so they celebrate. And so the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham prepared a great feast on that day, and Isaac was weaned. But Sarah knows the son. Now, weaning doesn't necessarily mean just stopping from breastfeeding. Weaning has more the idea where the child is not completely dependent upon the mother every single moment or second, which is usually typically seen for a boy around six, seven years old. So it's not directly associated with breastfeeding, but more like that. So the idea is Isaac is probably old enough to be walking around now when he is now on his own, which means he can now go and play with his brother. It's not going to be happening when he's a baby. So that fits it in better context, too, that he's out there playing with his older brother Ishmael. And so this great joy is immediately by the fact that Ishmael is mocking Isaac. We don't know exactly what he's mocking him over, but the mocking seems to be significant enough that Sarah is freaking out. And more than just children making fun of each other, mocking in a normal sense, Chances are Ishmael might be holding over Isaac's head that he is the firstborn and that Isaac is not the legitimate child as far as the one who inherit the headship over the tribe. And Sarah does not like that. There also might be some mistreating involved in that too for her to react so strongly that it's one thing for him to be mocking him. It's another thing for her to just so violently want to kick him out, out of the tribe. And so this is a threat. 
Now, one of the things that it shows is that this is the lack of faith on Sarah and Abraham's part, because the reason that there is an Ishmael threatening the promises of Isaac is because of their lack of faith. And so here, after all these years, this is still a threat. And just as it was a threat before where the mother mocked Sarah, now the son is mocking her son. And so she immediately goes to Abraham and says, get her out of here. Get her and the son out. I don't want to see them or hear them anymore. Just get them out, kick them out. And remember, technically, she has the right to say that. But Abraham, it says that he became angry. Now, this word upset or angry, the only time you ever see this word in the Hebrew Bible is when a guy or somebody explodes with great anger or God wipes out a bunch of people. So this is incredible anger. And then the narrator adds the adjective very. So this isn't just the anger of somebody exploding in rage. This is very angry. And that's Abraham's response to his wife. And it may not be even directly towards her or just maybe the scenario itself. We don't know exactly what he was responding to, but this is bringing him great displeasure, great making him upset. And you have to understand, in Sarah's eyes, she is looking at the son of her maidservant, where Abraham is looking at his son. And so there's two completely different perspectives on this Ishmael here. And so where she has no problem saying, get rid of him. For Abraham, this is his son. This is his son, and he loves him. And so he's greatly distraught. But notice that God comes to Abraham and says, obey Sarah. Do what she said. Now, you have to understand that Abraham might be hesitant at first because the last time he listened to Sarah in this kind of a scenario, it got him Ishmael and Hagar as his wife. So now you probably imagine like, what? (laughs) But God says, obey her. Send Ishmael away. But God says, he is my child, so to speak. And I have made promises to him. And I will protect him. And I will make him into a great nation. But God sees Ishmael as a threat to Isaac as well. And so Isaac is now, Ishmael is now old enough where he can be sent away from the family and be on his own. And the word child here can be very misleading. Because when we think of child, we think of a child. But the word child can be anyone from a small um, toddler all the way up into the teens. But it's most usually used as someone who can take care of themselves. Someone who's old enough to take care of themselves. And so we should be seeing Ishmael more in his early to mid-teens here, which I know that you're probably thinking, well... I don't think they can take care of themselves. But remember, a teenager is completely different in that culture than there is in ours. Because you have to remember, most women were being married off by 14, 15 years old, and they probably already had a hand in raising all their younger brothers and sisters. They've worked on the farm or keeping with livestock. There's just the need to be more responsible far more quickly in those cultures and some other cultures in the world today than in our culture. We prolong maturity intentionally in America. And so the the point is that Ishmael is old enough that he can take care of himself. And so this isn't just throwing a kid out into the wilderness. But God basically says he's a threat to Isaac. He's a threat to the promises. He's not a part of the covenant directly. It is time to send him on his way. Don't worry. I will protect him. I'll provide for him. And so Abraham obeys God. He sends them away. 
which means now Lot is gone, Isaac is born, and Ishmael sent away. So all the threats to the promises of this great nation are now gone. You think. Until you get to chapter 22 and God presents a new threat himself. And that's asking the child to be killed. And so right when you think all obstacles are removed, God throws a wrench into the whole thing. But for a reason. So, but that is yet to come. And so Ishmael sent away. Hagar goes out into the desert with enough provisions to survive for a few days. And finally they're starving, they're thirsty, they're out in the wilderness, and they, they're about ready to die. Now what's very interesting is that the Bible makes it very clear that Ishmael is old enough to take care of himself. But then it seems like he's this tiny little baby screaming out. We know that's not true. I mean, if you do the math, you know that Ishmael is at least older than 10 years old. Yet when she takes him and hides him like behind a rock in a bush, like because she doesn't want to hear him crying, you're like, why is a kid that old crying like a baby? And we don't know why, and it's kind of weird. And maybe it's just more of an annoying whining, complaining, which I think we're more familiar with. Um, <laughs> And so that sense of he's complaining, she can't stand it. And maybe she's overreacting as a mother who knows that she can't provide for them, a mother who knows they're in the wilderness, a mother who knows that they're about ready to die. And so maybe his cries seem far greater than what they really are because she knows that there's no chance that they're going to survive now and they're pretty much going to starve to death. So it may just be the emotions of this situation. And God comes to her. And he reminds her of the promises that he made. And he reminds her that he will take care of her. And as he's doing this, once again, for this Egyptian foreigner, who we have seen no evidence of faith on her behalf towards this Yahweh, he keeps honoring this because of his promises to Abraham. And he says, I will take care of him. And then it says that he made her see a well that was there. Now, that's not uncommon language for God. A lot of times there's a lot of things that we're blind to, and God comes in and opens her eyes to it. We don't know whether that well magically appeared because God wanted to be there, or the well was always there, but she didn't have the eyes to see it. It's hard to know. Typically when that word is used, it's always been there, and we just don't have the eyes to see it. Like when um, Elijah and the servant are surrounded by the enemy of Aram, and God's, and Elijah prays that that guy's eyes will be open to see the angelic army that is there. That army has always been there. It's just he's now given the eyes to see it. And that same word is used in that way. But either way, God is basically pointing her towards life so that she can be taken care of. And so verse 20, it says, God was with the boy as he grew. He lived in the wilderness, became an archer, and he lived in the wilderness of Paran. And his mother found a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Once again, going back to Egypt, not good connections, but she's an Egyptian. But the idea of this last phrase is here, is he grows up fine, God watches over him, he becomes skilled as God prophesied that he would, and now he gets married, which means marriage means children, which means the great nation that God promised him. And so God can leave his story at he got married. Because that shows you that all those promises will be coming. And so though Ishmael's story ends here, and it never continues anywhere else in the Bible, the Ishmaelites keep coming back as a group of people. And the next time we're going to see the Ishmaelites 
is when the brothers of Joseph are selling Joseph to the Ishmaelites. And actually, before that, we're going to see Esau marrying an Ishmaelite. So those are the next two times that we're going to see the Ishmaelites coming back into the picture. So then we come to verse 22, which is kind of a new story, same chapter, but a different story. And we're told that Abimelech, the same Abimelech that he just lied to and almost got in trouble, comes to him and says, I want to make a treaty with you. Now, this is kind of weird because we go from this story of Isaac's party and that kind of stuff, and then all of a sudden Abimelech comes in the scene. You're like, where does this story come from? It could be because normally God talk, the narrator talks about somebody journeying from another land to come see them, or they came, and, but bam, Abimelech's there with this other guy, and they want to make a treaty. It might be that the narrator is going back to the party, and Abimelech has been invited to the party, the celebration of the sun. But he's delayed the Abimelech story to complete the Ishmael one. But now that the Ishmael story is complete, the narrator comes back to the party to then discuss the Abimelech issue. So it might be that Abimelech has been invited to this party, and Abimelech says, hey, by the way, I would like to make a treaty with you. Which this is incredibly significant in the sense that Abimelech has seen God blessing Abraham so much that Abimelech is willing to come to a man that almost got him killed by this God and a man that lied to him and says, I want to make a treaty with you. And the whole point of this is showing back in chapter 12, verses 2 through 4, that God said, I will make your name great so that you'll be a blessing to the world, but so that others will want to bless you. And the idea is not just that they want to bless Abraham, but they want to be a part of those blessings. And so Abraham, overall, Abimelech watches him because Abraham's living in Beersheba, which is slightly north of the Negev where Abimelech is. And he's watching him, and he sees something different about this Abraham. I mean, it probably doesn't hurt when this guy's God shows up to you in a dream and has a conversation with you, and gods don't do that. And then he sees the wealth of Abraham. He sees how he's being protected. He sees the fruitfulness of Abraham's family and tribe. And he looks at that and he says, I want to be connected to that. And we don't see a conversion of faith here. But the narrator still lists this up as Abraham's being a blessing of the world. And also shows that though Abraham is screwed up big time previously with Abimelech, it's not like he lost all of his chances with Abimelech. And it's not like he ruined that relationship completely. And so Abimelech wants to make a treaty. And Abraham agrees, but on one condition. You stole my well. Now, that doesn't seem like that big of a deal, but remember, water is gold in the ancient world. I mean, even today, if somebody was tapping into our water line and taking water and racking up our water bill, which is ridiculous, then you would be pretty upset at that. And so he accuses Abimelech of taking the well. And Abimelech swears that he has nothing to do with that. And for whatever reason, Abraham's convinced that he isn't involved in that. And Abraham makes a treaty with him. Now, you say, okay, that's a weird thing to put in the story. But that's an important thing to keep in the story because you need to know this relationship because that same scenario is going to happen again with Isaac and a different Abimelech. The same Abimelech from the same town 
You have to remember Abimelech is most likely the title of a powerful position rather than a specific name like Pharaoh or Caesar or something like that. And so Abimelech is going to have a successor who's going to have an encounter with Isaac. But the difference is where Abraham accuses Abimelech of stealing the well, and Abimelech says, no, I don't. And Abraham knows him well enough to say, okay, I believe you. That's not going to be the scenario that Isaac is going to have with the next Abimelech. And so one of the reasons that this story of the well is here is to help emphasize what's going to happen later with Isaac, that this is definitely a different, that tensions are higher with this Abimelech and Isaac than they were with Abraham. And so they make a treaty. But Abraham offers, they make sacrifices, and the fact that Abraham is the only one who presents animals for this covenant sacrifice suggests that Abimelech is the greater king. And that Abraham, though he is a type of a king over his own tribe, he is not as wealthy, he is not as powerful, which is presented by the fact that Abimelech comes with an army. And the fact that Abraham is the one who offers up animals and Abimelech doesn't makes Abraham the lesser king from what we know from these kind of treaties during that time period, which emphasizes this treaty also more, so much more, in the fact that Abimelech, who is the greater king, the wealthier king, the more powerful king, wants to be so desperately connected to this lesser king. Usually it's lesser kings who come and ask for treaties of greater kings. Why is a greater king coming and asking for a treaty from a lesser king? And it must be because Abraham is greater in a different area. And that's the fact that he's a prophet. He's a man of faith. He's connected to this Yahweh. And Abimelech is wanting something more than just power, money, and protection because Abraham can't offer him that as a lesser king. But what Abraham can offer him is spiritual blessings as a prophet of God. And so that emphasizes the fact that Abimelech wants something more than just a political alliance, which really emphasizes the promises of God of being a blessing to the world. Abraham offers up seven lambs for the well, which already belongs to him. But the point of this is now he has a treaty. He has a treaty with a greater king. And that greater king now has an invested interest in protecting Abraham's claims. And so by providing seven lambs for the well, he's proving to this king, I have purchased this well. He might have had to purchase it twice for all we know. But the second purchase with this king at the same time of making a treaty means that this king knows that Abraham has legal right to the well because he's proven it with these animals. And two, now with the covenant, this greater king is required to protect Abraham's well from other people who might take it. And so what this also does is the story shows is that we're a tiny little bit step closer to Abraham taking possession of the land that God provided him. Because of this entire land that God promised him, Abraham now legally has one well. Yay! (laughs) And so he's just a little bit closer to having that entire land. And now he's in a treaty with somebody who he's blessing spiritually who will then protect his claim to this little parcel of land that he has. And so the story shows a gradual fulfillment of the promises that aren't going to happen until Joshua comes along. So it's going to be baby steps.